ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Hi, uh, this is Gus Van Sant, the director of the film you're watching, Drugstore Cowboy. And I'm Matt Dillon. So this uh, this cue we we discovered on uh, uh, a late night show, and we we uh, we wanted to use use a cut, but the only uh, cut that existed, of, for all we know, was from that show. So we had to call up the show. I think it was um, could have been David Letterman. I thought it was Johnny Carson, but I don't think Johnny Carson was. Still on the air. No. In 89 or 90. But I remembered you'd said. So this is actually the cut from, from the television show. And it's been 10 years, so like now a lot of things that I've, I'm thinking about this film are sort of faded in memory, so I'll probably get a lot of things incorrectly. I was once a shameless full time dolphine. Yeah, me, Bob. The sweet mother's son. Me and my crew robbed drugstores. Now, who do you think was, uh... Who was, who was shooting this here? You, you guys were shooting it, right? Yeah, we were doing <clears> it, <throat> but I can't... So James was shooting this shot, probably. James shot a lot of it, I think. Yeah. We all shot stuff. Yeah, I think it was the first time that, uh... Now this, I don't know if any of us shot this. Yeah, yeah, you guys shot this. Shot I think all of it. Pretty much, pretty much, um, all four of you guys shot your own footage, so that it was, uh, you know, true home movie stuff. Mm. It worked out pretty good. <laughs> Looks like a home movie. <laughs> uh, Kelly or Heather was probably shooting that. Yeah, it was interesting. So now, what about the song? The song, you know, uh, Ira Gittler, from, uh, who's a jazz critic, called me because he was doing a discography. He's doing a definitive discography on jazz, and he was asking about it. And, but it doesn't it was never on a record, and I don't think he didn't know that. So I said, I think it came from a TV show. Yeah, I mean, this recording, definitely. She has another one um, that she recorded, but it wasn't really, didn't really have the... the thick quality that this had so this is pretty much uh no it has a uh, kind of an immediacy it doesn't feel like it was recorded that it was you know practiced or rehearsed it feels very like a cocktail bar or something yeah Did you shoot that, or did you pick that up as a second unit? Oh, these, a lot of Beautiful. these time-lapse time shots were done later by Eric Edwards as a second unit piece. This is our famous street corner, uh, 21st and Davis, I think, in Portland. Yeah, I remember during the rehearsal period, we actually cased this pharmacy. <laughs> and you, you and James used to go out and practice? <laughs> 
Yeah, we practiced a little. This is a, this is a very tough scene because uh, we were behind schedule already, even though we were, had only been shooting for three days. And we did this scene, and I think the first shot was to point the camera directly at this uh, mirror, this uh, fisheye mirror. And the the producers and the crew kind of thought that I'd gone insane because um, because I was trying to um, do something kind of nifty with the camera. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't really know what else to do. It's interesting, though, that a lot of these shots when we first come in are are pretty tight right for like the opening you know yeah well we're trying to introduce each each person after we've seen the home movie and the, the voiceover explaining the different characters which was added later sorry i don't think we carry that it was a it was a reintroduction And a lot of these, uh, most all of this story written by, the original novel, novel written by James Fogel, are s stories and, and retellings of their, their uh, his own and his friends' exploits in uh, robbing drugstores because they had developed this uh, intense drug habit. Um, yeah, Brian Ward. Brian Ward was May one of the characters. May he rest in peace. And uh, James Fogel's was out of prison for a while, but recently was went back in uh, under similar charges of, of robbing drugstores again. He may have actually, they may have actually knocked off that pharmacy because yeah. I spoke with that pharmacist and he said, oh, we were knocked off so many times that we really don't even keep the lauded around the pharmacy because uh, it's just too, too much of a target. Yeah, Dilaudid being the, the uh, synthetic heroin concentrate at least concentrating in our film hurry up I told you to walk not crawl you said walk and that's what we did yeah I said walk but I didn't mean to go window shop how many of those Cadillacs did we have two because one of them got the roof sawed off of it right right there are two Watch it drive. Right. There's traffic up here. Shit. We gotta get home. Idiot, move over. After any kind of drug haul, everyone in the crew indulged. I laughed to myself as I pictured blues are delighted in such great amounts that the spoon would literally be overflowing. Upon entering my vein, the drug would start a warm itch that would surge along until the brain consumed it in a gentle explosion that began in the back of the neck and rose rapidly until I felt such pleasure that the whole world sympathized and took on. This is like the uh, a montage that was was written in the screenplay. It said it said montage, mm -hmm. if you remember, and all the voiceover was meant to go under this sort of 30s-style montage. And when we finally did it. It had this other kind of quality, and yeah. we liked it. I remember so much. at one point I think you were going to do actually ants in the grass or something. Yeah, like. you were supposed to see the ants and supposed Crawl. to see all the different things that were in the the dialogue. But this um, really came out. I think I really like this. This came out good, so we we added the other ones. This one sort of inspired uh, 
us to do like three or four other montages. Were they not later. in the script? No, the other ones weren't, but it's this one was. It's funny how you forget them. <clears throat> And Max Perlick, who uh, was sort of a uh, handful, <laughs> in a good way. Max, oh yeah, he was fun. <laughs> yeah, but for for you and James doing stuff with Max, I remember it was it was uh, it was Nuggie City, man. Yeah, he was he was uh, he was always coming up with something new, so it was sort of hard to keep a beat on on like. Well, he was he was very inventive, but yeah. uh, Stud Cuyati from Malinoche. Yeah, I, I love that thing with the knife. You know, now I remember this walk here I got from my friend Googie Grass used to imitate a typical California person the way they walk with the thong. So I thought that was the idea of something being very casual, because the idea was we were supposed to walk into the house as casually as possible, not like we're rushing in to get high. Yeah, and I don't remember what if anybody lived in this house or not. Did they? Yeah, uh, there was a family that lived in this house, and they moved out for us to uh, redress it, put all the stuff on the windows. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> David Brisbane was extremely uh, sort of... Um, I think we shot this on our first day of shooting. Really? Or second or third. Second, yeah, this is the first scene. But David's art direction was extremely um, kind of on the verge of 60s or 70s psychedelia. I always thought of the story as being um, a, the story, a sort of drug story about the wrong kind of drugs in, the, in an era of drugs, mm. like the incorrect kind of... 69, 1960. It wasn't about hallucinogenics, that's right. for sure. But, uh, yeah, it was a different mentality between the, the two groups, you know? Like these characters would probably not even smoke pot. They wouldn't right. be bothered with it. <laughs> and, in fact, I remember John Kelly, remember we talked to John about, right. about it, and he said, oh, yeah, most we just thought of pot as a cheap, dirty high. Right. Like, not, that's the way they saw it. You a while. Shh. Everybody just act cool. Nadine, pick up. Come on, pick up the drugs. Rick, get your gun out. Get in the bedroom. Back me up. Shit. <laughs> David, what do you want? I just want to see you for a minute, Bob. Come on, let me in. You alone? Yes, I'm alone. What do you think? I brought my rat-faced granny along to hold my hand. Rat-faced granny is really such a <laughs> line from from Fogel, you know? The hell, Pot? Have you finally gone completely crazy or something, man? What the fuck do you want? What are you holding? I ain't holding diddly small fry. I was just thinking about going by your place to see if you had any speed. <laughs> Yo, uh, I got some speed. Really? Cool. Okay. Oh, 
Now, did you guys have to make sure that all the dailies were good before, before, before having the police raid the house where you knew you were going to have to? Oh, before we busted it up. <clears throat> yeah, I think we were. I mean, this scene took a couple days to do, so we were checking that kind of thing. I mean, every day you'd get a, a negative report, so sometimes even, even before you left the location, you'd figure out whether or not you needed to cover something. Nothing ever bad happened, usually. So I gotta say, I mean, I think that he did a really great job on what you guys did with the cold color thing, because I yeah. remember it was something that as an actor, we don't really pay much attention to color, color schemes and stuff. And I thought that, that it, I really learned something on that, in the film, in that way. Yeah, Beatrix's idea of the costumes was to not have anybody wear t-shirts or jeans. None of the characters throughout the whole movie. That was sort of one of her, her objectives, because that was a very easy thing to think of. Uh, junkies in 1970, you know, sort of a throwback to the Beat era or of t-shirts and jeans. And the whole color structure of the... I mean, the, the one of the philosophies of color behind the film was that uh, green was our black. Um in black and white. We were trying to make a black and white movie in color, so green became the black for us. So everything's pretty much shades of green um, to give you a black and white impression. But, you know, I hear from cinematographers and stuff that, you know, I hear about, oh, you know, this particular cinematographer hates the color green, and they do so much to, to sort of... Get away from it, yeah. To get away from green, you know, they have to... Yeah, and we, we, had, the, we had that opinion as well, but... Because we didn't like it, we thought we wanted to go for it. Well, that's you know? really works because it's something you don't see a lot. That color, like the color of the walls, and I know it's, it's pretty intense. So there you go. Rules are made to be broken. Yeah. You know how hard it is to get blues these days, David. Now how about some morphine? I got some good old morphine. It's funny seeing all those sweaters. I always seem to have a different kind of mohair sweater on, <laughs> and that was something. It was really interesting when we went up to meet Fogel. I mean, I guess one of the things I was concerned with was like they cast me, but I'm Fogel's like in his fifties, and I'm right, I'm yeah, too young younger, for it. Yeah. But it turns out he said no. The guy who Bob was based on was looked just like you, you know, and he was like thirteen, fourteen years younger than me. Right. And then we saw pictures of him, and he did kind right, of look yeah, like you guys me a looked alike. He was yeah. a lot smaller than I was, I think. Yeah, but the same, he had this look with these cardigans and plaid pants and stuff. Yeah, I mean not cardigans, you know, the V-necks. And... I'll hit you with nine quarters per package, and that's just because I'm feeling good, and because you're a real stand-up dude. And the close-ups in the film, there are all these stylistic, very close shots of of different things throughout the film, were a result of um, when I had done. My film before this, Malanoche, I, I was very used to running around with a Bolex and, and getting these super close-ups of different things, which is something I was sort of developing as a filmmaking kind of style. And then when we shot this, the crew was so enormous compared to the normal. What I was used to was just like two people on the crew. And uh, the crew was so big on this that I couldn't, I couldn't really run around and get any close-ups mm. because... I didn't really have the camera equipment, and, and when you had the whole crew pointing at something like a cigarette or uh, a syringe Producers or a gun. Producers start really getting nervous. 
Yeah, because it takes a lot of time, <laughs> yeah. each little shot. And uh, so we did them later in the editing room over a two-day period. We just picked out the places that we wanted to slide these in and uh, eventually got them. Yeah, I mean, it really and it really helps in getting in and out of scenes, you know. I notice it's a real pop in and out of scenes. Right. You have that sort of thing. I mean, it's it, sort of a throwback to, to the whole junkie mentality of like focusing on your shoe or <laughs> focusing on yeah. things that are very close or ponderous and now I just want to say <laughs> that line was originally a one-eyed Filipino right right and there was a lot of concern about that you know sort mm -hmm. of you know it's not exactly politically correct although it sounded like something that this guy might say we made it a carnival freak, which I think is we were, equally uh, effective. We were being uh, cautious. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you had interpreting. You didn't photo. have a problem with it, but somebody did, and so we said, "All right, we'll just." All right, our producer's problem. You know, it's always interesting to see, like, night exterior. It's a difficult thing to uh, to do well. I, I like it here, though, you know? I think sometimes they overlight it, you know? It looks like there's five moons in the sky or something. Now, I remember we, we hadn't planned to shoot this scene that day. And you said, hey, uh, you think you could do this scene? And I didn't, I didn't really look at the text. I hadn't looked at it, and I was like, and I was feeling good, I remembered feeling energized. I think it was like the middle of the second week. And I just said, yeah, let me look at it. And, and I think it was great that we did it that. It was more yeah. spontaneous, less rehearsed or studied. Yeah, it worked out really well. well yeah, this, this sticks in a lot of people's mind, your performance in this, uh, in this scene. You're crazy, Bob. Man, we just pulled off the best score we make in months, and off you trot looking for more. <laughs> I want to take a break. Come on, Bob. I remember you and Kelly had uh, developed a um, sort of honeymooners situation. <laughs> Jackie Gleason and uh, um, Audrey Meadows. Which it was sort of like that. It was written kind of like that. Yeah, it really was like I Love Lucy or The Honeymooners. It was more The Honeymooners because everybody yeah. had this real contentious nature. At least the couples did, you know. But uh, it was good because we did rehearse this stuff. And, and I think that you were very good very generous with your time in pre-production with rehearsal, which really paid off for us, you know. And we drove around. We got in character. We ad-libbed a lot in the rehearsal period. It gave us a sense of structure within our characters. And yeah, there was one day where we drove around and you guys ad-libbed for about two hours or something like that. Mm -hmm. You got in a car accident. Uh, that's right. And who and got in the car accident? Kelly. And I really reamed her out for it, too, <laughs> I remember. And you, within, You're John and within, Kelly? Yeah, John, John Kelly was your uh, 
your friend and reference your yeah. drug we your got drug all we reference. got all the uh not all of them i shouldn't say but some of the cops people playing cops were junkies we're cops we're junkies yeah i shouldn't say junkies you know you guys been reading too much Mickey Spillane or something? Yeah, you don't seem to understand, Bobby. Hey, come on, knock those clubs. Those are my Ben Hogan's, man. Why you gotta Golfing. Make that was something yeah. that we kind of came up with. And also, we found out that Brian Ward, who was one of Fogel's friends and one of the inspirations uh, in the, the uh, original novel, was uh, a golfer, which was odd because I had decided to put, like, this little golf golf reference yeah it was serendipitous yeah and funny that both of our fathers are right your father and my father golfers have played golf independently of our relationship they somehow like play golf together you haven't gone and hit the drugs in some stupid place like the frosted flakes again have you what the hell you're talking about fuckwad (laughs) he was like that fuckwad line She's over 18, 22. You're 22 years old, right? 22. 22. Lucky for you. Okay, kiddies. Here's how it's going. How old was she, for real? 18. She was 18. Yeah, this is the first... uh, Heather's first film that she was able to choose on her own. Uh, Before that, she had been... I had seen her in License to Drive, and she was very good at playing this this like perfect uh looking uh kind of um high schooler and she had this this scene where she was drunk and she was locked in the trunk of Corey Haim's car and uh she was doing movies like that but she really wanted to be in movies like Heather's and she wasn't allowed to be in Heather's because her parents wouldn't allow her to be in it but as soon as she turned 18 she chose Drugstore Cowboy which was another film that sort of uh upset her parents this looks like a Roman a scene out of some <laughs> Roman toga party or something. Yeah, but the character of Nadine was under 18, wasn't she? I think she was, you know, she was under 21. Or she was, I don't know, I think she was supposed to be around 17 or 18. Get an apartment. It's, over it's an way. interesting midriff being revealed. <laughs> the idea was like... Uh, of this, I remember talking with Beatrix about it. Was that nothing fit, and er- that's like a real image of of of, of a- addicts, you know, like on the corner with their mother's raincoat on. Whatever they, whatever you end up with. Yeah, like I'm clearly wearing uh, like it's not Kelly's really a, raincoat. It's not about presentation. It's about just keeping warm. Keeping man. warm. Because you sold your coat. Right, you'd already sold. You would have sold your. In this case, the cops ripped everything up, but you would have, maybe as a junkie, you would have sold your coat. And here, maybe as a junkie, your mom would be so used to you, her, you stealing her money that she would yeah. behave like this. <laughs> See, I love these little shots of the neighbors and stuff, stuff I don't really remember when we were shooting it, you know. Ma, you don't happen to have those clothes I left you last time I was sent to the joint, do you? Now, I was having a complete blast doing this film because I had never... I mean, this is my first big movie, 
and I'd never uh, directed anything with somebody with with your in your your position as an actor, a star, and a, a talent like like yours. And so for me, it was this unbelievable sort of like uh, moment in life where, as long as nobody's asking, you're going to go ahead and keep shooting until somebody says no, you're not allowed, you're not supposed to be doing this. <laughs> and uh, so a lot of the things that are, that's, that are going on in this film and. And, uh, you know, sort of are being created because we're just making them as, up as we go along because the crew is so big, I, I have no way to plan it out. With my storyboards were so complicated, I couldn't copy the storyboards. So we're just making up shots like this or any given shot. But I remember being very, uh, you know, happy to be given the opportunity to do something. So I was, I was trying my hardest to do all kinds of things. Is there anything else of yours up there? There is, just give it away. I can always get some more. Oh, to be sure, you'll just go steal some more. And it was all this was shot in Portland, where I was living and where Fogel had lived for a while. And we sort of fought to have the film shot up there to make this sure. This is that... really one of my favorite locations that we filmed at. I had so much, I really felt like one of the most enjoyable points of making this film was when we were here. I was really, I really regretted leaving it. And it, and it clearly, it's such a photogenic location too. It was really beautiful. Yeah, it's a great the trees. And I love this shot. The last time I dropped acid, I decided to make a self-portrait. Groovy, isn't it? <laughs> you see all those bottles of pills that hospitals holding for me right now. I'm Tom Peterson. It's our stereo buy of the month. And you can choose any of This is Tom Peterson's per first appearance in any of my films. Is he in all of your films? Almost. Any Oregon like the last any Oregon films for sure. Now, I think you went with some Dutch angles here. Yeah. We went with the Dutch. I don't know, uh this is me again, just trying, just like thinking stuff up, just trying great. to jazz things up because. It, uh, Tell them what happened to the last one we had, Bob. Diane, if you wanted to know so much, why don't you tell them? I don't want to discuss it. And this whole thing about hats and dogs and the hex and is really comes in. I guess this is like 26 minutes in, but it comes in right on cue. You know, it's like the it's the creation of the second act of the picture. And it's really the sort of heart of, of uh, it's really the soul of the story. I mean, it's about a guy trying to escape his own demon that he mm -hmm. imagines as this, you know, good and bad luck of his life, sort mm -hmm. of floating behind him, you know. And, and uh, he reads it. When it's in his favor, he goes. When it's not in his favor, he sits, he lays still, which is a complete gambler's uh, code. And he's gambling essentially with his luck, you know, in the, in as a criminal, as a as a. Uh, robber of mm. drugs interesting because he spoke about that about this guy brian ward coming from this kind of irish catholic mother was also superstitious he was superstitious and there's a book that i never i bought it and i never read it called the hat on the bed by john o'hara and i don't know i should give it to you you might want to look at it so it is a superstition but i remember this scene when we filmed this 
that you just built that doorway. That was a set that you built. Right, right. So I, we could I get the, we passed it, but so we could get the little dog running up with the cops. And I remember being really impressed with that. I think and this is a small movie, <laughs> but it was like early on in the picture, and I thought, wow, that's kind of great. Pulling little tricks like that. No, what I just do? You've no idea. No, I don't, Bob. What I do? Just put a 30-day hex on us. That's what you did. Our luck just flew out the window for the next 30 days. You got a calendar so we'll know when this hex ends? What month is it, anyway? Jesus, Bob. And we tried to get that weird noise. Uh, was supposed to be the sound of the hex. We could never get it right. We could never get it, like, to sound really sort of bizarre. It always sounded sort of just like a horn or something like that. All right, well, now that we're on the subject, are there any other sacred things we're not supposed to mention that are going to affect our future? So the hex actually has a sound. And we might as well discuss them right now, being as we shut down for the next 30 days. Hats. I ever see a hat on a bed in this house. And I also forgot, last time I, I was watching this film, about a month ago, I forgot how how intensely this theme plays into the entire film. It sort of never lets up. It's always, once it hits the the kind of hex, it's it's pretty much, pretty much becomes about that obsession, which is, sort of, I think, the strength of the film. Yeah. I really got interested in superstitions when I was doing this. And, um... I actually picked up a few because I was reading books on superstitions like, you know, never wash your clothes before you wear them. Like, I, I won't do that now, even though really? I don't like putting on a fresh T-shirt until it's been worn a little bit. So I'll put it on my head just for a minute, you know, or something, and then throw it in the laundry pile, you know. Like really? Weird things like that. Wow. Like that. And a hat on a bed is certainly something that I, I catch myself doing once in a while, and I immediately... I think the hat on the bed, we traced it back to Indi an Indian superstition, which might have had uh, sort of more, of more of a hygiene origin where a turban would have been something that people wore on their heads that might have bugs or lice in it. That if you took your turban off your head and put it on somebody else's bed, that they might get the lice that were in your hair, and it might start a confrontation between those two families or the two people. And... Uh, developed into the superstition. Bad luck can be good luck. I mean, think of all the times we had a flat tire or engine trouble or something. We made it to our score late thinking it was bad luck. We need to find out for some reason it was good luck. You know what I mean? Hell, I can't figure it out. I just know, from years of experience, the things to look for, and the signs, and, and you know, it's like, it's like, who's ever managing such things is saying, go out there and get it. And yeah, here, the two characters are in the dark and philosophizing about good fortune and bad fortune, not really understanding where they might be, but but saying, all I know is is that, like, if this, you know, this, this dog shows up, <laughs> watch it. 
because every time the dog shows up, <laughs> we fuck up. It's so much like a handicapper at the track, you know? Yeah. Every time somebody spills a drink in my presence. That was a little ad lib there, wasn't mm -hmm. it? With the golf club? Yeah. Just go in there, we plant some stuff on them, we drag them on in, it works all the time. I'll tell you why not. Because I don't want to get Bob Hughes on no bullshit possession beef. And that's all we're going to get him on unless we catch him cold. On his way home from a score, you know that. So this this is uh, the kind of B-movie cops and robbers side of the story that, that, that enters in. That's mm. an, another thing that Fogel's writing about. But probably one of the more conventional, you know. Did I wake you up? No, no, no. We were awake, weren't we, Rick? Well, I don't know what to think. I saw this sinister-looking man with a ladder creeping around outside my bedroom window. I know that I wouldn't be able to sleep a wink if I thought there was some crazy sex maniac running around oh, loose well, out well, there. Well, well, now you just relax. We'll so this, this is my uh, good friend Paul Dickel's grandmother. When at the time we were shooting, I had no idea. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Bye-bye. I actually remembered because she didn't know she was supposed to walk away. Right. <laughs> and she was really so much fun to work with, you know. She was nine, I think she was eight, 92 years old when we shot this. Yeah. I bet he followed us when we moved. Son of a bitch. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll have to teach him a little lesson, huh? It was really difficult getting that over there. I think if you notice, we I don't think we did we ever really. Yeah, I think we might have just. Uh, it was really hard to land it in a, that cut. Use a cut, hide it in the cut. Guy that lives on the north side of him. They have a line running between their houses. And Bob signals the guy when he wants the stuff. The next door neighbor. Puts I really like Yeoman shooting here. You know, it's really yeah, it's very good. Really nice, beautiful. I like those um, chimes. Is that supposed to be? Yeah, Elliot Goldenthal did the the musical score, which he had done Siesta for Mary Lambert, I believe, and uh, Pet Cemetery, or maybe he had just done, done Pet Cemetery, and uh, that's where I had heard his score or his his work. And um, yeah, he used he used a lot of interesting. 
instruments, and he did, he made a lot of in interesting choices in the in the track. He's got one hand underneath his raincoat. From where I was standing, I got to tell you, it looked kind of sick. I'll shoot the son of a bitch. I'll shoot the son no. of a bitch right in the balls. Now hang on a second, Mister. I remember seeing this actor later. He's part of the Seattle repertoire. Yeah, yeah, he's real, pretty real well known. Real good actor. Yeah, yeah. I'd seen him in. Uh, uh, six character characters in search of an author, Pirandello play. In Seattle. Yeah, when I was doing singles later on. Yeah, I do see a lot of these guys a lot because they're all like Oregon and Seattle actors. Now this scene was when an actor really has to really really has to work because it was written pretty. <laughs> Unlike some of the stuff was, was was very specifically written. This was sort of like it's super end. super wacky. He watches him out the window, and and it was yeah. sort of like we had to kind of put it all together, and everybody kind of he kind of did it on the fly, didn't we? That sort of yeah. like making it like an audience thing. And, yeah. And you had that little subplot of being attracted to Nadine, and and Diane. Or I think it was more that. Diane thought I was attracted to Nadine. And you were just helping out. Yeah. Innocently, yeah. Because she's getting insecure because I'm never... Like, because I'm incapable of, of, of having sex with her. What was his... Uh, what was his original <laughs> name? It was Gus something, and then it became Gus Honeycutt because it sounded too... Which... Oh, the guy next door? Yeah. Hmm, I don't remember. Here's our second psych montage. Gus no. Buford? I don't remember. Oh, yeah, he had a funny name. like. But it sounded... Gus Honeycutt sounded... Oh, no! We changed it to Gus. It was initially another name. It was initially like Buford Honeycutt. Mm-hmm. And we changed it to Gus. It sounds actually pretty good now, but I liked kind of Gus Honeycutt, you know. And it was yeah. we just... I remember we were talking about it. I don't know. Somebody said, hey, we "What about it for some call reason. him Gus? Gus, he looks like a Gus." I really thought that this would be a nice place to live. The uh, yeah. Josephine apartments. <laughs> It was sort of in Portland, a kind of bohemian apartment building that now is a condo. Nothing further to add, you little punk. Almer and Trzinski know you set them up, and I can honestly say they are anything but happy about it. There's a shot coming up here that I really like that you did, which is a close-up of his tight button shirt, necktie, and his Adam's apple. He's real angry. And I like this guy behind him. Uh-huh. The cop behind him. He looks like a real mean bastard. Well, all you gotta do is worry about the usual Saturday night drunks and kids fucking around. <laughs> so you think you're on the wall, huh? Pick him up. You're just a junkie that got one of my officers shot. And as soon as he gets a hold of you, everybody's going to forget that you ever existed. Let him go. 
Stand up, Bob. Yeah, one of our uh, sort of an action scene for me. <laughs> it was tell there was the scene continued on actually a little bit. There was an exchange between Yeah. Which I kinda liked, but I think it got maybe a little silly. Oh, that we cut out. They said so they beat the bejesus out of me, the cops. Yeah, or yeah, that's right. Oh, that's right, with uh, Nadine. And I really love the use of uh, the Israelites here. Yeah, that was a good, good deal. Crossroad. Diane got the narcotics together and sent them ahead by bus to depots across the Pacific Northwest, so we could rendezvous with the drugs. Is it like another technical side to Fogel's story of being a junkie on the road? You send the drugs ahead have holes in the floor of your car, do all these different things to, like, survive on the road I as remember a junkie. this day, it was raining for a couple days, and we were like, we just have to shoot it in the rain, and it worked, yeah. it worked out great. It looked great. Yeah. That's the Northwest. Here's the honeymooners again. <laughs> I remember thinking that my little walk, my excited walk out to the car, you encouraged it. You were, I said, do you think it's too much? I encouraged said, no. all that kind of stuff that you and Kelly were doing that was sort of this very old world relationship of uh, man and wife, you know, very, very uh, kind of... Backseat Bob. And that was something which is very much in the way it was, it was written, but it's the way that you see things that I liked. You always liked the idea of Bob laying down in the backseat. Well, seat. that came from Fogel's... Uh, Fogel s s insisted that Brian would need to lay down because if he if he watched what was going on on the road, he would backseat drive to the point where nobody could do anything. He'd grab the wheel and head them off the road. If mm. he himself drove, he would get so excited that he would literally run stop signs and run, you know, up on the curb and run, you know, around cars on the opposite side of the street. So he couldn't drive. So mm. the only way to get the but car he drove, going. But when they got, also there was this thing like, here he is driving here, it's because yeah. he's out of town. He couldn't really drive around in, in, in local Portland no. or places where he was known because the cops would see they him. They would also see him, yeah. And they'd be true. able to track him. So the best thing for him was just to be in the back lying down. But he couldn't trust these two to drive you. No. Diane. Now, by the way, none of us... None of us knew what a transom was for real. Really? During Funny the scene? Enough, no, we didn't. <laughs> I think you were the other, and you looked at us like, what, you guys don't know what a transom is? I don't think I knew either. I just, I, I had asked somebody. One, two, This is the last shot of the movie, right here. I remember after we did this shot, the lights blew out. I remember when you, when you empty these during the whole shoot. That was the last deal. Take these and put it inside the truck. Rick, step in here a minute. I want you to look at these two safes. You see them over there? I remember this was so funny when I was watching this. The staging of it was so funny. <laughs> I, you know, I really think that Heather does. She's a very special. She's a specialty 
actress. She can play freak out. She can play dead. You know, she can play drunk. You finished hot pants. You, you blew, blew it. it. I think there was a whole scene. We just didn't have time to shoot it that where I had all this dialogue where I laid into her. But it was better. Sometimes <laughs> it's better you can say the same thing in one sentence. Right. And I think it was like a... I think Fogel really liked the vocal. The mm -hmm. Well, he wrote it in prison, so I guess, like you were always saying, that he had a lot of time to write mm -hmm. endless amounts of dialogue. I thought... <laughs> There was a lot of dialogue, though, that we burned through. And Kelly, I always liked that she played this as a, uh, an every woman, you know? Like, doing her hair, doing her nails. Mm. She was very real. This here little bottle has got 840-some-odd sixteenths, and a $10.16, that comes to around $8,400 of the best goddamn pharmaceutical dope money can buy. What if I had this here little bottle ought to last the three of us a week? Yeah, I better take that. You didn't work, Bob. Something about Bob is really a control freak. And I like that about him, that he was, was fun to play. Mm -hmm. He didn't feel like he could trust anybody else to, to do right. anything, really. Especially this one. <laughs> yeah, she, she she doesn't really uh, fit into the scenario, Bob scenario very well. She doesn't like to be subservient. She's the young upstart. No. She feels one down from the rest of the crowd. I remember when we shot this, uh, the motel owner said that there were tons of things stashed up there that he that he found, mostly you know, used syringes and vials and things. Really? That it was a, yeah, a common thing for him to find up there. It wouldn't surprise me from the looks of some of the clientele at that hotel. This is a Rocky Erickson song playing in the background. Is that right? All right. Yeah, my friend was a uh, had a large which, collection. Which song was it? Um, don't remember the title of it. Listen, we're gonna go out for a couple hours, but we'll be back in a bit. What did that son of a bitch say about me? He didn't say anything about you. Yeah, but he's not gonna take me along anymore, is he? And then one day you'll all just drop me off somewhere and you'll never come back. Is it on the soundtrack, the song? I think it is. I think it's on the soundtrack. Have you gotten into Rocky Erickson? I've always found him to be curious, interesting, but I've never really listened a little bit. Yeah, you have to get one of those. I like some of those, like Skip Spence, those guys that are sort of... sort of tragic, kind of... Ahead of their time, kind of 
mad genius. Mm-hmm. They're superior ways. <laughs> That's a real Fogel line placed into a 19-year-old girl's mouth. <laughs> They're superior ways. I guess that would. Fit. I really liked. Uh, I really liked James in these scenes. He's so, yeah, so intense. You know. hospital feel about you filming a drug robbery in their hospital? Did it help that it was a period film that took it out of a present day reality? I don't know if you know I don't remember how we uh, dealt with the uh, Emanuel Hospital personnel you know I'm not sure what we were giving people as far really... as information about what we were, what we were up to, <laughs> and drug stories, I was surprised that it's a children's uh, it's a children's program we're doing for uh, public television. I think that the the drug stories were very interested. Although in in starting the project, I thought that they would be extremely um, against any ideas of you know depicting these guys robbing drugstores. Something that I didn't wasn't really knowledgeable about per, as just a you know outsider of this world and um they were very happy because because people didn't really know about it they wanted they wanted us to film in their drugstores so people would actually know that this happened because they would you know have they'd be subject they were targets mm -hmm. for all kinds of things and maybe the hospital would have the same sort of um reaction but i didn't personally talk to the Head of the hospital. Credit to the... Uh, <clears throat> something interesting here about the discovery that Bob makes in this pharmaceutical locker is very telling and very specific about the types of drugs that uh, James Fogel likes and doesn't like. <laughs> you know, I mean, most people would think that Demerol would be something that would be... He that called a it junk you would want. Dummy oil. Because Demerol just makes you conk out. You're just unconscious for 10 hours and you and wake these up. These characters use drugs at a very high tolerance. I remember specifically not wanting to really clobber the guy with it because it wasn't Bob's style. He wasn't a particularly violent individual. <laughs> Good diet. Like him. 
Bob's like a rabbit. In and out and no nonsense. Here's another reference to Bob's lack of interest in <laughs> sex. I was always trying to get lens flares in the shot. There was, I just saw one go by there, but it was something that was very taboo in, in the process of making a Hollywood movie, and the grips and the DP were always trying to get the lens flares out. Ah, coitus. It's one of our vice presidents of the production company, Lori mm -hmm. Parker. Later went on to produce with you. Private, Lord, Idaho. private Idaho and cowgirls. Now, as we're going to see my shoes here, now they seem like very hip shoes now. But when we made that movie, nobody was <laughs> going around looking for like Gucci knockoff shoes. It wasn't exactly <laughs> trendy, right? Right. Beatrix was telling the fashion future. Yeah. This is another Cadillac that Eric shot. Mm. We also liked the close-ups we sent away to Eric, and we said, get get us some... So more. Eric did all the second unit stuff. He did all the time-lapse, yeah. It wasn't mm. anything that was in the film. And I said, Eric, you know, he, he it was something that he did as a hobby. On the weekends, he'd go out and take time-lapse shots. I said, take some time-lapse shots of things that we need, like... We Such need a talented guy, Eric. Yeah. I don't You know, he gave me a uh, Super 8 camera that I later on went out to use, you know, and I shot some fun stuff with it. I never, I never uh, developed it until I went to Cuba, like, years later. And I developed this role that half of it was from Cuba that I just shot. And the other half of it was Max and I and... Wow. And... Uh, uh, Manji. What's it, Ralph Manji? Ray Manji. Ray Manji. We're having a little party with a bunch of girls in a hotel room. You're not going to believe the shit that happened to me tonight. What's going on? Who put the goddamn hat on the bed? She did, Bob. She didn't mean anything by it. Where'd she get the stuff? She couldn't have done this on the two sixteenths. What you been doing, saving it up? Who gave her this? What is it? Damn. She must have picked it up off the floor of the truck when we were collecting these bottles. Say that about her, Bob. She's dead. You don't say anything bad about her. Rick. She beat you. Your own woman beat you out of your cut on 
She's really keyed up in the scene. She got what she deserves. Listen, man. Not only that, she threw a hex on us. We'll all be lucky to outrun, huh? She left us with an OD'd step, which is paramount to a murder beef in this state. For crazy Not a lot of time and not a lot of doors. I remember that. So we did it twice and... Oh, right, yeah. I thought it was very... <laughs> it was just the type of thing that Rick would do, you know, the way... <laughs> just start out like, I'm gonna punch you, but uh, I can't punch Bob. <laughs> but then Rick turned out to be kind of an operator later. Running his own, his own ring. Mm. So we don't really see that. We hear about it. Which sort of we the way things go. We always wanted to like start on the drugstore cowboy two project with Rick and Diane out on the road. <laughs> <laughs> and they run into Bob someplace. Naturally, I felt. He should wash his hands after handling the deceased. <laughs> I mean, Diane. All these kids. They're all TV babies. Watching people killing and fucking each other in the boob tube for so long. That's all they know. Hell, they think it's legal. I always liked the way Bob would differentiate himself from the rest of everybody else. Right. You know, yeah. society, because he was a different way of looking at things. Which I think also is, like, connected to the drugs. He, the he's drugs. blaming everything on television. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like nothing's right. You know, everything's basically wrong because of this, and he's philosophizing. But I think that's, that's a common, like, symptom of a drug addict. Yeah. yeah. Are you planning on checking out today? No, why? Well, you see, sir, we have prior commitments in the form of a reservation for your room today. Today? Let me check out today? I'm afraid so. You see, we're having a sheriff's convention in town, and all these rooms have been reserved in advance for them 90 days ago. All right. <laughs> We're gonna know some of those guys, I'll bet. I don't believe it. I don't fucking believe it. A sheriff's convention, no less. Why couldn't it have been a, a Tupperware convention? There was another alternative line for that. Better yet, Tupperware convention. So, yeah, the line used to be pharmacist convention, but... It didn't seem appropriate yeah, that you, he, he would be anxious to have a pharmacist convention. I, th I think that you were thinking that already Bob was deciding he was getting out of it. Well, they already, he was they were so in. loaded up with narcotics, it just killed one of his crew. Hello? Right. Anything? I'm sorry, Mr. Hughes. should have let us know you intended on staying this long. 
I've got a colleague in that room, and he's he's sick. I'm afraid to move him. I mean, what if they should find it? Colleagues. Gonna look legit. Now, the painting in the background of the water. We used a lot of like sort of deep water imagery right in the. I think there's another one in the motel because mm. he was in deep water. Over his head. What were those voices there? Um, people talking about him. Um, you know, he's supposed to be sort of facing uh, a jury, maybe hearing hearing people in the. During the trial. Did you borrow this shot from... There was a shot somewhere. I think it's from this scene. No, we, we Where I'm listening one. to the airplane that's flying overhead. Mm. Oh, right, yeah, coming up. There's a shot where you hear a plane. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what's wrong. I'm afraid some big fat cop's gonna come rumbling through this door any minute. Say, get out of this room. This is my room. Diane. Yeah. I love you. I love you too. So you think that's a plan? Well, that we played with that. That's what we were doing. But it's more interesting without it. Oh, that was uh, actually, I was supposed to put in a sound effect of a plane? Or was it a real plane? Get that blue garment bag. Big one. No, I think it was an earlier moment that maybe was taken out. Right. I'm freaking out, out about they're everywhere. Yeah, paranoid. Now you were saying this is one of the only, this is one of the this only one of the sets. only sets that David Brisbane had the money to build. And I would not have remembered that. I would have just assumed. So we was... shot this like on the same stage as we shot the interior of, of uh, the police surveillance van. I think there was a line missing, isn't there? Like, what a drag? Perhaps. Wasn't there supposed to be a line? What a drag. I think that we, uh, somehow cut that out. I'm not sure why. Don't worry, Bob. We'll make it. We always do, don't we? I remember I tried to get the makeup girl to volunteer, Janine, to volunteer to get into the bag. She may have. That may have been her. Might have been her. I think that was her. <laughs> That's pretty rough. Because I wanted a real body in there. Let's go, dear. We're gonna miss no, that wasn't flight. her. You're right. It was too, too rough. I just haven't put so a lot the cops peeling down, peeling around in the in the driveway, turning on there. 
sirens a little bit. Mm. What do you say we go up to the attic, divide the stuff up with Rick, give him the big end? I'm kind of sure. What's going on, Bob? What are you thinking about? A woman's intuition. methadone program cleaning up my hands are you kidding no I'm not Diane you can't do it anymore well I'm not going on no withdrawal program so what's gonna happen to me why don't you come with me I often thought that this was you know, the, the whole idea that he goes back and the whole idea of a withdrawal program and so forth was sort of a way that Fogel, you know, he wrote the book, but I think that what he was really writing about was getting caught by the cops. And the withdrawal program would basically be him in prison. And the way that he writes this next section of the of the story and the way people visit him in that little room where he ends up, is very much like people are visiting mm -hmm. him in prison. It's really not really and the like type of work that he does. Kind of work that he does. It's not really about real life, because I don't think Fogel actually ever lived in in a real situation in his life. So he his orientation is very interesting because it goes into this into this period of film, which is almost like life standing in for what what in fact in his mind is is prison which I always found really amazing about the story. I remember filming in these woods. It was really very strange. <laughs> it felt like a graveyard because there were so many trees that had been, there had been so much deforesting, deforesting yeah. going yeah. on there. And I remember going to places. I remember walking around with uh, Heather and I walking around and, it's just bizarre. Like you come to a point where there were these huge trees that had to be very, very old, you know. And then mm -hmm. it would just come to a stop, and then it was just like leveled, leveled. They just Shot a lot of film to get. Oh yeah, to get to get this moment, and yeah. it was, I think it was worthwhile. And you were very good about. I think at one point Heather got down into the. Uh, and you had a dialogue. Grave. Yeah, yeah. And I, I had her talking to me. With sort of the, the the hat and the hex and the. You know, all this different stuff sort of coming after you and... And her death and... 
Bob the Catholic boy. The altar boy. Yeah, I always like the staging of this shot. You know, the, uh, her position on the right. Mm. And then this sort of triad here. James in the car. You're in the middle. And then she drifts over to James' side. I remember um, I had some music that uh, was very melancholy. I think it was some Duke Ellington music, and you were like, oh, that's great. You know, you can have that. Would you play that when you're on the bus just for yourself? You know, because it kind of was nice to get into And we were playing it during the scene? Yeah, because it was all MOS. Mm -hmm. Another sucker on the vine. Like the ripples of a stream. So love me tonight. Tomorrow was me. And the Venetian blinds in this room always remind me of prison bars and the size and the, and the uh, sink in the corner. Richard's cameo. All my life. Then this isn't your first time withdrawing. No. It's my first time withdrawing on uh, methadone. How old are you now? 26. Are you married? Uh, yeah. Where is your wife? I don't know. Do you have children? Funny, before we filmed uh, the scene, it was like the first week of shooting, I had been reading the book, 
and I called you and I said, you know, Gus, there's some really interesting stuff in the book. I didn't make the script, and would you mind if I played with, you know, incorporating it? And you were, like, very open to it. I said, I don't think I'll be able to memorize all of it. So, yeah, there was, oh, there were, um, you know, like, whole sections. This part here? Not, not, not this part. Just didn't pay off. You know, you don't see my kind of people. Because my kind of people, they don't, they don't come down here and beg dope. They go out and get it. And if they miss, they go to jail. And they kick along with nothing and some, and some holding tank. I'm sorry, Bob. I don't mean to hassle you. Oh, this is required. I'm sorry if you think it's unnecessary. Have you ever considered becoming a counselor and helping other addicts with their problems? No. <laughs> kind of a funny thing. Maybe it was a, something about methadone clinics and the time that they would never now ask somebody to be a counselor when they're just... Uh, and that might have been well, more Fogel's take on it. She might think that you're a good, like, sort of spokesman and, and philosopher. This but, was the stuff that we incorporated. Yeah, right here. Gunshot in the head. But something. Something to relieve the pressures of the everyday life, like having Booze, a tie. the gasoline, shoes. the gunshot. Right. Cameo. Now this guy behind them, Bob. He's a regular. That's in the, the films. Uh, yeah, Bob Pitchland. Mm -hmm. Sort of our one of our friends in Portland. Father Murphy. Hey, Tom. It's <laughs> like the way he turned around. <laughs> I remember consulting with Burroughs. What did you use? Oh, I'd tie up with an old necktie. <laughs> I have nowhere else to go. There is no well, William's in very good shape and in this film I've forgotten because he lived until he was 83 I guess he would have been about let's see 76 in this as a matter of fact I'm feeling a bit sick right now are you holding nope he got me on uh, 21 days thing methadone <laughs> He always sent Christmas cards after I worked with him. The ones that like that he made, the little stamps. Yeah, yeah he but he would always good. write like a personal. Yeah, he was really good that way. Which I still just... And sometimes I think some junky nurse may be stepping on my medication. But I can't be sure. How about it? Want to score? 
I'll keep you company. Yeah, so we only shot with Burroughs one day. This here is an artwork. Part of his agreement to do this was that... Was it all in one day? The entire, his entire thing only be, only last, his involvement only last for one day. So this was just a scene we picked up. I just said, you guys just go talk about something. <laughs> Walk through the park. So we covered it from a couple, a couple angles, I think, at the same time with two cameras. And you guys just walked through the park once or twice. Which it turned out really good. And all the other scenes that he was in is all packed into one day. Pretty good for a day. You sure we got it all in one day? Yeah, it was part of the deal. It was a deal. long day, I do remember. It was a, it was a long, long day, but... By the time we were up in the rooms upstairs in the hotel, it was the end of the day. It was definitely a long day. I was tired. <laughs> This is what you call a radio arm drill press. Get the drill you want, putting it in the holder, make sure you've got a good grip on it. That brings your drill down to your work. Position it over the hole. That's one of the one. first scenes we filmed. Then. Oh, yeah. That's a, and Maybe the, not. A funny metaphor of the drill press and the drilling holes. Yeah, right. Transistor radio, hot plate, cup of tea. It's very jail-like. Yeah, even the outside looks like a a yard. And these these types of scenes, you know, these guys are like cons, you know. Mm -hmm. In, I mean, we did this all with was sort of without really the knowledge that, that what we were leading to, I think. But in, intuitively, we were, we were putting blinds on windows like that that looked like bars and uh, constructing scenes. This wasn't in the script. This is just like an extemporaneous scene. We got the method I, I really liked it. It was very... Uh, and I remember this shot because here again, it was one of these things. Yeah. Getting these shots were important to you, and I, I thought that was very smart. I liked it that you were... Doing these, picking these little things up, you know, time passing. It's what it is. It's doing time. Creature of habit. Just the habit changes a little bit. And the way characters like this like visit you, it's almost like they're visiting you in a confined space. You can't get away. I haven't given it much thought. You know, for once, I'm not here to hassle you. You know, Trzinski lost his gold badge over that little incident. He's working traffic out in the North End. He's made so many goddamn threats, he's almost going to happen. There was a line that, that Trzinski's working traffic, that's something that happened to this local cop because of something that that he did wrong that concerned, like, a, fr a couple friends of mine and I. He, he had to work traffic for a week as punishment. You know how whimsical women are. She found some other dude to chase after, and off she went. Chasing after him. I find that a little hard to believe. You and Diane have been running around together since you were little kids. Yeah. 
Yeah, the colors are really good in this room. It's like one of the best ones, one of the best sets. And it was part of the story, Fogel's story, that we cut out where Bob befriended somebody at work and they went out and bought a suit. Mm -hmm. This old timer. Yeah. It's great. You get a lot of stories. Yeah. You were saying you cut out the. Oh, there was the, you know, just a friend you knew at work and. And uh, they went together in, in the book, and they bought a suit. There's Ray and, and Mike Parker. Punk, where the fuck is my money? Come on, this is the third time I had to ask you. Come on, what are you going to say? Say something. Come on, you want me hey, to get you up on? Say something. Hey, David, what do you think you're doing, man? Huh? What do you think you're doing? This kid's crying, man. This was an added scene, wasn't in the book, to sort of bring David back into the picture. So that he was a character in this part of the story. It was a good, good ad. Remember, Max was really going off on uh, on Mike. Yeah, on Mike. His face took a little extra pleasure in slamming him against the wall. Tell me a lot of the old time stories about I used to stick your arm in between the bars of the cell. The guard would come by and he'd buy you up a shot of morphine. Well, they never did that for me. Well, they don't do that for anyone anymore. Narcotics have been systematically scapegoated and demonized. The idea that anyone can use drugs and escape a horrible fate is anathema to these idiots. I predict in the near future, right-wingers will use drug hysteria as a pretext to set up an in International police apparatus. Sort of on the money, isn't it? Yeah. I like how Burroughs uh, decided to deliver his <laughs> soliloquies. You might have missed your calling. You should have been a philosopher. Well, Bob, in another life, perhaps. <clears throat> another life. I was sort of playing with a kind of low-grade depression. He's been getting high so much, I think. Right. A lot of his endorphins are kind of shot, so he's just... Yeah, he's just sort of crawling back. 
is it? Who is it? Dump is this? Where's the female? You might as well trot her out. You don't ever change, do you, Diane? Goddamn right I don't. Why should I? Hey, I was just commenting on how good you look. Yeah? Yeah, yeah I'll bet. Hey, how about a cup of tea? Yeah. Yeah. So how's that methadone thing working out? So so. Hey, I got a job. Did I tell you that? Oh, shit. Where are you working? Oh, just machine shop over on Western. Yeah? Well, what do you do there? I, uh, I drill holes. <laughs> drill holes? <laughs> I, drill, I drill these holes that uh, bolts fit into. Yeah, one of the things we forgot to do in a case like Diane could be perfectly well, made up like that, but she could have like a couple like really big sores on her face. Like from picking scabs. That was one wanted. No, but I just no. It's not nothing I really was aware of. But like, it would have been something that would have been more accurate. Her skin is so perfect that she that she would have gotten worse over time. Yeah, yeah. And she might have look really really nice, but then there might be some telltale signs of yeah. blemishes mm -hmm. or uh, sure. Definitely, the skin goes. You know. That's from Rick and the rest of us. Kind of thought you might need a taste once. What happened? What made you turn around that day? Was it me? Did I do something wrong? No, baby, it wasn't you. It was Nadine's death and the heck she threw on us with that hat. And then I panicked when I looked out into the parking lot and I saw all those cop cars. Hell, I knew I was dead. So I started copping deuces. I prayed like I never prayed before. I said, God, son, devil, whoever you are up there, Please have pity on me. Please let me get this poor girl's body out of this hotel room and into the ground so I don't have to spend the rest of my life in prison. And God, if you'll do that for me, I'll show you my appreciation by going home, getting on the methadone program, getting a job, and living a virtuous life. Well, I got out. And I promised, so... Are you going to stick with it forever? Well, I remember it being a tricky scene because you don't want it to be too boredom, sentimental. Brings, it's not that bad. You know? I mean, yeah, it was really hard. So bad. I mean, I actually wake up some mornings and I feel like something good's going to happen today. You know? I'm a regular guy. I got my regular job. I got my regular room. Now I got you. <laughs> You're crazy, Paul. You're really crazy. <laughs> hey, Diane, why don't you go downstairs and tell your friends that you're going to spend the night and come back and bed down with me for a little while? I'd like to, Bob. But I got another old man. 
I'm, I'm Rick's old, old lady now. Ain't that a gas? I work for Rick. There we were teaching that brat to steal, and now, I, now I'm on his crew. Things sure can get screwed around, can't they? Yeah. And Bob, you know me. I might have been a lot of things, but I never was a tramp. I gotta go. Hey, Diane. It's really good to see you. I wish I could win you back. Yeah, she's Rick's old lady now. You can't put your arms around a memory. Johnny Thunders. <laughs> That's a great line. The gentry's uh, favorite eatery. that moment is he surprised to see Bob cleaned up I think uh, this is all like sort of these things all sort of converge Gentry notices Bob Bob notices the drugs he takes the drugs to Tom you know it's like all these David shows up it, all right, these things so we don't know to, what's gonna happen here I mean you're thinking you see the drugs there after you see Gentry you sort of like all the characters are kind of rallying around and then sort of ends with Burroughs looking out the window. I always like the exit sign over your head. There's a couple times in films I've made just before a character dies. There's an exit sign, like right there, pointing the way, like, off stage. Mm. And I remember really like the, getting this look right with the sweater and the shirt. Like there's something like he's trying to be a, a citizen, you know, mm -hmm. with the collared shirt. It's very like, you know, it's something off about it, you know. And I remember, you know, the collar, you know, something you would have seen in a, you know, catalog. Of, mm -hmm. uh, this is the square. This. 
sixteenths of Delauded. This should earn you an indulgence. It's interesting, the whole idea of indul earning mm -hmm. an indulgence. Which Tom was the priest. Something that the Catholic Church at this point can't be too proud of. No. That period of their history when you could buy your way to heaven. Where's it at, Bob? What do you want? I want your dope, man. Where's the dope? If you think if I had dope, I'd be sitting in this flea trap, huh? I'm on a methadone program. You coming around me for dope? That's a laugh. <laughs> oh, shut up. All right, fucker, man. You want it the hallway, and we're just the guys who are going to give it to you. Say you, David. Uh, will you listen to me, you little punk? <laughs> I'm going straight, man. I ain't fucking bullshit. I'm going straight, man. He always put, like, bells under his, uh... Fucking liar. The image of David. Somehow, his mask made us think of sleigh bells. Was she a real resident? No, she's a character actor in Portland, but she fit right in there. There's nothing more life-affirming than getting the shit kicked out of you. I knew it in my heart. You can buck the system, but you can't buck the dark forces that lie hidden beneath the surface. The ones some people call superstitions. Howling banshees. Black cats. Hats on pets, dogs, and the evil eye. So I relaxed and gave into the notion that for the very first time in my life, I knew exactly what was going to happen next. Fuck. Now I'm gonna kill the son of a bitch. I bet you the next bastard we capture will tell us where it's at. So he's tough. <clears throat> they ain't all tough. I say kill him. Did you hear me, Bob? Max is pretty good in that. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a, a kid who really is not totally aware of what he's totally aware of what he's doing. TV you know? baby. He's a TV baby. <laughs> Why is that? Because uh, he's sort of delirious, communicating something almost, you know, spiritually. He's telling Gentry things that aren't going to make sense to Gentry, but it makes makes sense to um, Diane when when Gentry see, Gentry sees her, you know. She'll know to like run like hell, like run harder than he ran, because he's convinced that like the hex is like even like closer than he thought. 
you know, because it's it's his, it, you know, according to his philosophy. <laughs> He's just about to like go, you know, just like conk out and die. I mean, in in my mind, he dies. That's one of the big questions, you know. And I always tell people that, in fact, you know, you get up out of the stretcher and you walk away. That's what happens at the end. People always want to know if you die. And he dies in the book, you know. And we just weren't, we played the game and didn't allow yeah. our lead character to die well, because it's too much like, you know. In my mind, the I hopes. thought he died too, but in this actual <clears throat> script that I first read, it wasn't really clear whether he died no, or not. No, but that's, that was in the book and we, we changed the script. The original script, the lights turn off on the, on the ambulance because he's oh, dead. Oh, yeah, yeah. But we left the lights on. You never know what's going to happen next. That's why Nadine spiked herself with the easy way out. That's why Diane keeps on going like she does. See, and I don't know why we shot this shot. Like, I think it must have been something to do with the whole idea that he didn't die. Well, I remember you saying to me that you liked the idea of seeing Bob for the first moment of the movie on his back. Yeah, but that and was the added. last moment. Oh, really? We yeah, because the beginning, the we first... We designed one, it that way? The beginning of the book, uh, script, oh, he was yeah. on his back in the back of the Cadillac. Right, exactly. Driving it had to do with Portland. It had to do with the Cadillac and not this, this ending. And I guess it's because we didn't have him die and we wanted to maybe intercut these images of the movie. And we didn't know we were going to do that in the beginning of the film. We decided to use it at the beginning as well. So he starts off lying down in the... But yeah, you're right. It, it matched him lying down in the, in the back of the Cadillac. Now tell me about this dog here. I don't know. I guess he was around when we were shooting the 8mm stuff. <laughs> I don't remember that dog. You don't remember that dog? I remember those shoes. I don't know where that came from. I guess he was on the roll of the 8mm. Householder, Karen Cook. David Householder. David? Yeah. He was good. Oh, there he is. There's my cameo. David Householder. Laurie Parker, Claudia Lewis, now at Fox 2000. Is Dave ha David Householder's uh, first AD still? Or yeah, no? and he's uh, he's just did the, the uh, sort of, I forgot, the superhero. I always thought he was great. Yeah, he's really good. Because he was the first guy I remember he never used, well, that I remember working with, who never used Ron open walkie-talkies. It always headphones. So I never got that anxiety that you'd feel when you'd hear walkie-talkies going off left right. and right. Yeah, he know? was good. good at that. Ron Judkins is, just went by. He, he won an Academy Award on Sunday for uh, Private Ryan. He did our location sound. Is that right? Yeah. Remember, he was the guy who gave the... I don't know if you were watching him, who gave the speech. What? He, he had come from Alan Parker's... No, Alan, Alan Rudolph's kind of group. And at the time, he hadn't done any really big movies, but he was a great sound man for us. Well, Alan Rudolph, wasn't he sort of... Um, wasn't he sort of very influenced by... Uh, 
Robert Altman. Yeah. Who was very, yeah. very, very innovative when it came to sound, I think. Yeah. There's that seven up jacket that uh Yeah. LeGros that was wore. Bob's jacket, our friend Bob. I remember it hanging on the wall like the plaid pants, and I said to you, I said, I won't wear flares. I decided in my punk rock way of thinking that I'll let my hair grow, but I'll never wear flares. I made that promise to myself so long before that, and those pants sat there like some sort of temptation, some sort of I am tempting dish. And I finally said, I got to wear them. There's that Rocky Erickson. I am, it's called. So we thank Bruce Weber because we used the typeface of his Let's Get Lost for our, our credits. Drugstore oh, Island. is that right? Yeah. Same typeface. Mm -hmm. huh? And Rob McBurn, who was an old friend who, who had died. <laughs> 